This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com Ericum, Heather Joy. Tracy Taylor, Jennifer B. Yox, Hillary W., and Lisa Gravenbauer. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for any of you who uh, haven't heard, these new names that I just read are uh, patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is an awesome site where you can go support the people that make the things you like. So, if Sleepy has helped you 
get a better night's rest and wake up more refreshed the next day, then maybe consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get access to a bunch of extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast. Um, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you would like to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. So tonight, we do have another spooky Halloween October episode. Um, and I know the last couple uh, Sleepy episodes were definitely scarier than some I've done in the past. Um, I know a lot of you like them. Today I'm going to uh, go slightly less spooky. I know the title of this episode might be a little misleading on that, but um, tonight we're going to be reading The Book of Werewolves by Sabine Baring Gould. This was written in uh, 1865 and it is less of a story about werewolves than it is um, Sabine's writings on the history and mythology of werewolves throughout different um, cultures all around the world. So it's a little bit more of an examination of werewolves and is more research-based, which means that it is nice and boring and great to fall asleep to. So, you're going to hear a couple chapters of the Book of Werewolves, and then they are going to repeat itself so that you can fall asleep and stay deep asleep. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just tight like it, Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 I shall never forget the walk I took one night in Vienne after having accomplished the examination of an unknown druidical relic, the Pierre Levy, at La Rondelle, near Champigny. I had learned of the existence of this cromlech only on my arrival at Champigny in the afternoon and I had started to visit the curiosity without calculating the time it would take me to reach it and to return. Suffice it to say that I discovered the venerable pile of gray stones as the sun set 
and that I expended the last lights of evening in planning and sketching. I then turned my face homeward. My walk of about ten miles had wearied me, coming at the end of a long day's posting, and I had lamed myself in scrambling over some stones to the Gaulish relic. A small hamlet was at no great distance, and I betook myself thither in the hopes of hiring a trap to convey me to the post house, but I was disappointed. Few in the place could speak French, and the priest, when I applied to him, assured me that he believed there was no better conveyance in the place than a common cheroo with its solid wooden wheels, nor was a riding horse to be procured. The good man offered to house me for the night, but I was obliged to decline, as my family intended starting early on the following morning. Outspake then the mayor, Monsieur, can never go back tonight across the flats because of the, the, and his voice dropped, the Lou Garot. He says that he must return, replied the priest in Patois, but who will go with him? Aha, Monsieur le Curé. It is all very well for one of us to accompany him, but think of coming back alone. Then two must go with him, said the priest, and you can take care of each other as he returns. Picot tells me that he saw a werewolf only this day, so night, said a peasant. He was down by the hedge of his buckwheat field, and the sun had set, and he was thinking of coming home when he heard a rustle on the far side of the hedge. He looked over, and there stood the wolf, as big as a calf against the horizon, its tongue out, and its eyes glaring like marsh fires. Mon Dieu, catch me going over the marais tonight. Why, what could two men do if they were attacked by that wolf fiend? It is tempting providence, said one of the elders of the village. No man must expect the help of God if he throws himself willfully in the way of danger. Is it not so, Monsieur le Curé? I heard you say as much from the pulpit on the first Sunday in Lent, preaching from the gospel. That is true, observed several, shaking their heads his tongue hanging out, and his eyes glaring like marsh fires, said the confidant of Picot. Mon Dieu, if I met the monster, I should run, quoth another. I quite believe you, Cortrez. I can answer for it that you would, said the mayor. As big as a calf, threw in Picot's friend, if the Lou were only a natural wall, why then, you see, the mayor cleared his throat, you see, we should think nothing of it. 
Bah, monsieur le curé, it is a fiend, a worse than fiend, a man fiend, a worse than man fiend, a man wolf fiend. But what is the young monsieur to do? asked the priest, looking from one to another. Never mind, said I, who had been quietly listening to their patois, which I understood. Never mind, I will walk back by myself, and if I meet the Lugaro, I will crop his ears and tail and send them to Monsieur Le Maire with my compliments. A sigh of relief from the assembly as they found themselves clear of the difficulty. Il est anglais, said the mayor, shaking his head, as though he meant that an Englishman might face the devil with impunity. A melancholy flat was the marais, looking desolate enough by day, but now in the gloaming, Tenfold as desolate. The sky was perfectly clear and of a soft blue gray tinge, illumined by the new moon, a curve of light approaching its western bed. To the horizon reached a fen, blacked with pools of stagnant water from which the frogs kept up an incessant trill through the summer night. Heath and fern covered the ground, but near the water grew dense masses of flag and bulrush, amongst which the light wind sighed wearily. Here and there stood a sandy knoll, capped with firs, looking like black splashes against the gray sky, not a sign of habitation anywhere, the only trace of men being the white straight road extending for miles across the fen. That this district harbored wolves is not improbable, but I confess that I armed myself with a strong stick at the first clump of trees through which the road dived. This was my first introduction to werewolves and the circumstance of finding the superstition still so prevalent first gave me the idea of investigating the history and the habits of these mythical creatures. I must acknowledge that I have been quite unsuccessful in obtaining a specimen of the animal, but I have found its traces in all directions. And just as the paleontologist has constructed the labyrinthodon out of its footprints and marl and one splinter of bone. So may this monograph be complete and accurate. Although I have no chained werewolf before me, which I may sketch and describe from the light. The traces left are indeed numerous enough, and though perhaps like the dodo, or the dinormous, the werewolf may have become extinct in our age. Yeah, he has left his stamp on classic antiquity. He has trodden deep 
in northern snows, as ridden roughshod over the medievals, and as howled amongst oriental sepulchres. He belonged to a bad breed, and we are quite content to be freed from him and his kindred, the vampire and the ghoul. Yet who knows? We may be a little too hasty in concluding that he is extinct. He may still prowl in Abyssinian forests, range still over Asiatic steppes, and be found howling dismally in some padded room of a Hanwell or a Bedlam. In the following pages, I design to investigate the notices of werewolves to be found in the ancient writers of classic antiquity, those contained in the northern sagas, and, lastly, the numerous details afforded by the medieval authors. In connection with this, I shall give a sketch of modern folklore relating to lycanthropy. It will be then seen that under the veil of mythology lies a solid reality, that a floating superstition holds in solution a positive truth. This I shall show to be an innate craving for blood implanted in certain natures, restrained under ordinary circumstances, but breaking forth occasionally, accompanied with hallucination, leading in most cases to cannibalism. I shall then give instances of persons thus afflicted, who were believed by others, and who believed themselves to be transformed into beasts, and who, in the paroxysms of their madness, committed numerous murders and devoured their victims. I shall next give instances of persons suffering from the same passion for blood who murder for the mere gratification of their natural cruelty, but who are not subject to hallucinations nor addicted to cannibalism. I shall also give instances of persons filled with the same propensities who murdered and ate their victims, but who were perfectly free from hallucination. Chapter 2 Lysanthropy Among the Ancients What is lysanthropy? The change of man or woman into the form of a wolf either through magical means, so as to enable him or her to gratify the taste for human flesh, or through judgment of the gods and punishment for some great offense. This is the popular definition. Truly it consists in a form of madness, such as may be found in most asylums. Among the ancients, this kind of insanity went by the names of lysanthropy, coanthropy, and boanthropy, because those afflicted with it believed themselves to be turned into wolves, dogs, or cows. But in the north of Europe, 
as we shall see, the shape of a bear, and in Africa that of a hyena, were often selected in preference, a mere matter of taste. According to Marcellus Sedates, of whose poem a fragment exists, men are attacked with this madness chiefly in the beginning of the year. Men become most furious in February, retiring for the night to lone cemeteries and living precisely in the manner of dogs and wolves. Herodotus states, It seems that the Nuri are a sorcerer, if one is to believe the Scythians and the Greeks established in Scythia, for each Nurin changes himself once a year into the form of a wolf, and he continues in that form for several days, after which he resumes his former shape. See also Pomponius Mela. This is a fixed time for each Nurian, at which they change, if they like, into walls, and back again into their former condition. But the most remarkable story among the ancients is that related by Ovid in his Metamorphoses by Lysaon, king of Arcadia, who, entertaining Jupiter one day, set before him a hash of human flesh to prove his omniscience, whereupon the god transformed him into a wolf. In vain he attempted to speak. From that very instant, his jaws were bespluttered with foam, and only he thirsted for blood, and he raged amongst flocks and panted for slaughter. His vesture was changed into hair. His limbs became crooked. A wall. He retains yet a large trace of his ancient expression. Hoary he is as before. His countenance rabid. His eyes glitter savagely still. The picture of fury. Pliny relates from Evanthes that on the festival of Jupiter Lysaeus, one of the family of Antaeus was selected by lot and conducted to the brink of the Arcadian lake. He then hung his clothes on a tree and plunged into the water, whereupon he was transformed into a wolf. Nine years later, if he had not tasted human flesh, he was at liberty to swim back and resume his former shape, which had in the meantime become aged as though he had worn it for nine years. Agriopus relates that Damantaeus, having assisted at the Arcadian human sacrifice to Jupiter Lysaeus, ate of the flesh and was at once transformed into a wolf in which shape he prowled about for ten years, after which he recovered his human form and took part in the Olympic Games. The following story is from Petronius. My master had gone to Capua 
to sell some old clothes. I seized the opportunity and persuaded our guest to bear me company about five miles out of town, for he was a soldier and as bold as death. We set out about Cockrow, and the moon shone bright as day. When coming among some monuments, my man began to converse with the stars, whilst I jogged along, singing and counting them. Presently, I looked back after him and saw him strip and lay his clothes by the side of the road. My heart was in my mouth in an instant. I stood like a corpse when in a crack he was turned into a wall. Don't think I'm joking. I would not tell you a lie for the finest fortune in the world. But to continue, after he was turned into a wall, he set up a howl and made straight for the woods. At first I did not know whether I was on my head or my heels, but at last going to take up his clothes, I found them turned into stone. The sweat streamed from me, and I never expected to get over it. Melissa began to wonder why I walked so late. Had you come a little sooner, she said, you might at least have lent us a hand, for a wolf broke into the farm and has butchered all our cattle. But though he got off, it was no laughing matter for him, for a servant of ours ran him through with a pike. Hearing this, I could not close an eye. But as soon as it was daylight, I ran home like a peddler that has been eased of his pack. Coming to the place where the clothes had been turned into stone, I saw nothing but a pool of blood. And when I got home, I found my soldier lying in bed like an ox in a stall and a surgeon dressing his neck. I saw at once that he was a fellow who could change his skin, and never after could I eat bread with him, no, not if he would have killed me. Those who would have taken a different view of the case are welcome to their opinion. If I tell you a lie, may your genie confound me. As everyone knows, Jupiter changed himself into a bull. Hecuba became a dog. Arcteon, a stag. The comrades of Ulysses were transformed into swine. And the daughters of Protus fled through the fields believing themselves to be cows and would not allow anyone to come near them lest they should be caught and yoked. St. Augustine declared in his De Civitate Dei that he knew an old woman who was said to turn men into asses by her enchantments. Apollaeus has left us his charming romance of the golden ass in which the hero, through injudicious use of magical salve, 
is transformed into that long-eared animal. It is to be observed that the chief sea of lysanthropy was Arcadia, and it has been very plausibly suggested that the cause might be traced to the following circumstance. The natives were a pastoral people, and would consequently suffer very severely from the attacks of depredations of wolves. They would naturally institute a sacrifice to obtain deliverance from the past and security for their flocks. This sacrifice consisted in the offering of a child and it was instituted by Lysaon. From the circumstance of the sacrifice being human and from the peculiarity of the name of its originator, rose by myth. But on the other hand, the story is far too widely spread for us to attribute it to an accidental origin or to trace it to a local source. Half the world believes or believed in werewolves and they were supposed to haunt the Norwegian forest by those who had never remotely been connected with Arcadia and the superstition had probably struck deep its roots into the Scandinavian and Teutonic mines ages before Lysaon existed and we have only to glance at oriental literature to see it as firmly engrafted in the imagination of the Eastern. Chapter 1 I shall never forget the walk I took one night in Vienne after having accomplished the examination of an unknown druidical relic, the Pierre Levy, at La Rondelle, near Champigny. I had learned of the existence of this cromlech only on my arrival at Champigny in the afternoon, and I had started to visit the curiosity without calculating the time it would take me to reach it and to return. Suffice it to say that I discovered the venerable pile of gray stones as the sun set, and that I expended the last lights of evening in planning and sketching. I then turned my face homeward. My walk of about ten miles had wearied me, coming at the end of a long day's posting, and I had lamed myself in scrambling over some stones to the Gaulish relic. A small hamlet was at no great distance, and I betook myself thither in the hopes of hiring a trap to convey me to the post house, but I was disappointed. Few in the place could speak French, and the priest when I applied to him, assured me that he believed there was no better conveyance in the place than a common cheroo with its solid wooden wheels, nor was a riding horse to be procured. The good man offered to house me for the night, but I was obliged to decline, as my family intended starting early on the following morning 
outspake then the mayor, Monsieur, can never go back tonight across the flats because of the, the, and his voice dropped, the Lou Garot. He says that he must return, replied the priest in Patois. But who will go with him? Aha, Monsieur le Curé. It is all very well for one of us to accompany him, but think of coming back alone. Then two must go with him, said the priest, and you can take care of each other as he returns. Picot tells me that he saw a werewolf only this day, silent night, said a peasant. He was down by the hedge of his buckwheat field, and the sun had set, and he was thinking of coming home when he heard a rustle on the far side of the hedge. He looked over, and there stood the wolf, as big as a calf against the horizon, its tongue out, and its eyes glaring like marsh fires. Mon Dieu, catch me going over the marais tonight. Why, what could two men do if they were attacked by that wolf fiend? It is tempting providence, said one of the elders of the village. No man must expect the help of God if he throws himself willfully in the way of danger. Is it not so, Monsieur le Curé? I heard you say as much from the pulpit on the first Sunday in Lent, preaching from the gospel. That is true, observed several, shaking their heads his tongue hanging out, and his eyes glaring like marsh fires, said the confidant of Picot. Mon Dieu, if I met the monster, I should run, quoth another. I quite believe you, Cortres. I can answer for it that you would, said the mayor. As big as a calf, threw in Picot's friend, if the Lou were only a natural wall, why then, you see, the mayor cleared his throat, you see, we should think nothing of it. But, Monsieur le Curé, it is a fiend, a worse than fiend, a man fiend, a worse than man fiend, a man wolf fiend. But what is the young Monsieur to do? asked the priest, looking from one to another. Never mind, said I, who had been quietly listening to their patois, which I understood. Never mind. I will walk back by myself, and if I meet the Luguru, I will crop his ears and tail and send them to Monsieur le Maire with my compliments. A sigh of relief from the assembly as they found themselves clear of the difficulty. Iles Anglais, said the mayor, shaking his head, as though he meant that an Englishman might face the devil with impunity. A melancholy flat 
was the Murray, looking desolate enough by day, but now in the gloaming tenfold as desolate. The sky was perfectly clear and of a soft blue-gray tinge illumined by the new moon, a curve of light approaching its western bed. To the horizon reached a fen, blacked with pools of stagnant water from which the frogs kept up an incessant trill through the summer night. Heath and fern covered the ground, but near the water grew dense masses of flag and bulrush, amongst which the light wind sighed wearily. Here and there stood a sandy knoll, capped with firs, looking like black splashes against the gray sky, not a sign of habitation anywhere, the only trace of men being the white straight road extending for miles across the fen. That this district harbored wolves is not improbable, but I confess that I armed myself with a strong stick at the first clump of trees through which the road dived. This was my first introduction to werewolves and the circumstance of finding the superstition still so prevalent first gave me the idea of investigating the history and the habits of these mythical creatures. I must acknowledge that I have been quite unsuccessful in obtaining a specimen of the animal, but I have found its traces in all directions. And just as the paleontologist has constructed the labyrinthodon out of its footprints and marl and one splinter of bone. So may this monograph be complete and accurate. Although I have no chained werewolf before me, which I may sketch and describe from the life. The traces left are indeed numerous enough, and though perhaps like the dodo, or the dinormous, a werewolf may have become extinct in our age. Yeah, he has left his stamp on classic antiquity. He has trodden deep in northern snows, has ridden roughshod over the medievals, and has howled amongst oriental sepulchres. He belonged to a bad breed, and we are quite content to be freed from him and his kindred, the vampire, and the ghoul. Yet who knows? We may be a little too hasty in concluding that he is extinct. He may still prowl in Abyssinian forests, range still over Asiatic steppes, and be found howling dismally in some padded room of a handwell or a bedlam. In the following pages, I designed to investigate the notices of werewolves to be found in the ancient writers of classic antiquity, those contained in the northern sagas, and, lastly, the numerous details afforded by the medieval authors. In connection with this, 
I shall give a sketch of modern folklore relating to lycanthropy. It will be then seen that under the veil of mythology lies a solid reality, that a floating superstition holds in solution a positive truth. This I shall show to be an innate craving for blood implanted in certain natures, restrained under ordinary circumstances, but breaking forth occasionally, accompanied with hallucination, leading in most cases to cannibalism. I shall then give instances of persons thus afflicted, who were believed by others, and who believed themselves to be transformed into beasts, and who, in the paroxysms of their madness, committed numerous murders and devoured their victims. I shall next give instances of persons suffering from the same passion for blood who murder for the mere gratification of their natural cruelty, but who are not subject to hallucinations nor addicted to cannibalism. I shall also give instances of persons filled with the same propensities who murdered and ate their victims, but who were perfectly free from hallucination. Chapter 2 Lysanthropy Among the Ancients What is lysanthropy? The change of man or woman into the form of a wolf, either through magical means, so as to enable him or her to gratify the taste for human flesh, or through judgment of the gods and punishment for some great offense. This is the popular definition. Truly it consists in a form of madness, such as may be found in most asylums. Among the ancients, this kind of insanity went by the names of lysanthropy, coanthropy, and boanthropy, because those afflicted with it believed themselves to be turned into wolves, dogs, or cows. But in the north of Europe, as we shall see, the shape of a bear, and in Africa that of a hyena, were often selected in preference a mere matter of taste. According to Marcellus Sedatis, of whose poem a fragment exists, men are attacked with this madness chiefly in the beginning of the year. Men become most furious in February, retiring for the night to lone cemeteries and living precisely in the manner of dogs and wolves. Herodotus states, it seems that the Nuri are a sorcerer, if one is to believe the Scythians and the Greeks established in Scythia, for each Nurin changes himself once a year into the form of a wolf, and he continues in that form for several days, after which he resumes his former shape. See also Pomponius Mela. 
This is a fixed time for each Nereid, at which they change, if they like, into walls, and back again into their former condition. But the most remarkable story among the ancients is that related by Ovid in his Metamorphoses by Lysaon, king of Arcadia, who, entertaining Jupiter one day, set before him a hash of human flesh to prove his omniscience, whereupon the god transformed him into a wolf. In vain he attempted to speak. From that very instant, his jaws were bespluttered with foam, and only he thirsted for blood, and he raged amongst flocks and panted for slaughter. His vesture was changed into hair. His limbs became crooked. A wall. He retains yet a large trace of his ancient expression. Hoary he is as before. His countenance rabid. His eyes glitter savagely still. The picture of fury. Pliny relates from Evanthes that on the festival of Jupiter Lysaeus, one of the family of Antaeus was selected by lot and conducted to the brink of the Arcadian lake. He then hung his clothes on a tree and plunged into the water, whereupon he was transformed into a wolf. Nine years later, if he had not tasted human flesh, he was at liberty to swim back and resume his former shape, which had in the meantime become aged as though he had worn it for nine years. Agriopus relates that Damantaeus, having assisted at the Arcadian human sacrifice to Jupiter Lysaeus, ate of the flesh and was at once transformed into a wolf in which shape he prowled about for ten years, after which he recovered his human form and took part in the Olympic Games. The following story is from Petronius. My master had gone to Capua to sell some old clothes. I seized the opportunity and persuaded our guest to bear me company about five miles out of town, for he was a soldier and as bold as death. We set out about Cockrow, and the moon shone bright as day. When coming among some monuments, my man began to converse with the stars, whilst I jogged along, singing and counting them. Presently, I looked back after him, and saw him strip and lay his clothes by the side of the road. My heart was in my mouth in an instant. I stood like a corpse, when in a crack, he was turned into a wall. Don't think I'm joking. I would not tell you a lie for the finest fortune in the world. But to continue, after he was turned into a wall, he set up a howl 
and made straight for the woods. At first I did not know whether I was on my head or my heels, but at last going to take up his clothes, I found them turned into stone. The sweat streamed from me, and I never expected to get over it. Melissa began to wonder why I walked so late. Had you come a little sooner, she said, you might at least have lent us a hand, for a wolf broke into the farm and has butchered all our cattle. But though he got off, it was no laughing matter for him. For a servant of ours ran him through with a pike. Hearing this, I could not close an eye. But as soon as it was daylight, I ran home like a peddler that has been eased of his pack. Coming to the place where the clothes had been turned into stone, I saw nothing but a pool of blood. And when I got home, I found my soldier lying in bed like an ox in a stall and a surgeon dressing his neck. I saw at once that he was a fellow who could change his skin, and never after could I eat bread with him, no, not if he would have killed me. Those who would have taken a different view of the case are welcome to their opinion. If I tell you a lie, may your genie confound me. As everyone knows, Jupiter changed himself into a bull. Hecuba became a dog. Arcteon, a stag. The comrades of Ulysses were transformed into swine. And the daughters of Protus fled through the fields believing themselves to be cows and would not allow anyone to come near them lest they should be caught and yoked. St. Augustine declared in his De Civitate Dei that he knew an old woman who was said to turn men into asses by her enchantments. Apollaeus has left us his charming romance of the golden ass, in which the hero, through injudicious use of magical sow, is transformed into that long-eared animal. It is to be observed that the chief sea of lysanthropy was Arcadia, and it has been very plausibly suggested that the cause might be traced to the following circumstance. The natives were a pastoral people and would consequently suffer very severely from the attacks of depredations of wolves. They would naturally institute a sacrifice to obtain deliverance from the past and security for their flocks. This sacrifice consisted in the offering of a child, and it was instituted by Lysaon. From the circumstance of the sacrifice being human, and from the peculiarity of the name of its originator, rose by myth. But on the other hand, 
The story is far too widely spread for us to attribute it to an accidental origin or to trace it to a local source. Half the world believes or believed in werewolves and they were supposed to haunt the Norwegian forest by those who had never remotely been connected with Arcadia and the superstition had probably struck deep its roots into the Scandinavian and Teutonic mines ages before Lycaon existed and we have only to glance at oriental literature to see it as firmly engrafted in the imagination of the Eastern. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.